have been on the front line since the pandemic began, and now they are first in line for this moment. Healthcare workers will get the first doses of the vaccine. Healthcare workers will be the first to get vaccinated. Healthcare workers were the first group in the United States to be offered the COVID-19 vaccinations. But several months into the effort, many healthcare workers remain unconvinced and unprotected. According to a Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation poll, as of early March, only 52% of frontline healthcare workers reported receiving at least their first vaccine dose at the time they were surveyed. Another 18% were scheduled to receive their vaccine, but 30% say they had not decided or were not planning to be vaccinated. And one in six said that if their employer required them to get vaccinated, they would leave their job. On this episode of Beyond the White Coat, we'll talk about the challenges healthcare systems are experiencing in trying to ensure their staff are vaccinated and what can be done to build vaccine confidence. This conversation was recorded on April 21st, 2021, and all data and information are accurate at the time of recording. This is the first of three episodes we'll be sharing as part of a AAMC project funded by a cooperative agreement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to improve clinical and public health outcomes through national partnerships to prevent and control emerging and re-emerging infectious disease threats. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Dr. Janice Orlowski, the AAMC's Chief Healthcare Officer. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Boom, the President and CEO of Houston Methodist in Houston, Texas, and Dr. David Collender, the President and CEO of the Memorial Hermann Health System, also in Houston. Um, in looking at both of your um, bios right before the uh, uh, started, I actually see that both of you um, are graduates of Baylor uh, Medical School. Did you know each other in uh, medical school? No, Mark's way younger than I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we might have been a couple of years off. But, uh, yeah, a couple of years apart, I think. Well, you know, it's a small world in medicine. So when I saw the connection, I, I thought that was terrific. Today, we are going to talk about why healthcare workers are getting vaccinated at lower rates and what we can do to build vaccine confidence and why it's important. Thanks for joining me today. And let's dive right in. Um, first of all, maybe what I'll do is, um, David, start with you. Should everyone working in a healthcare setting be vaccinated? Yes, we think so. You know, clearly vaccination ultimately is the best way that we can control the COVID-19 pandemic. I think we also have a role to play as leaders in terms of demonstrating that the vaccine is safe, the vaccines are safe and they're effective. So certainly that plays a role in our thinking too. But vaccination clearly is the pathway to controlling COVID-19 and all of us in healthcare should be vaccinated. Thanks. Now, Mark, I, you know, you were uh, one of the few places that actually um, were uh, mandating vaccination for your employees. Um, and uh, is it for your employees and for your whole medical staff, or how did how did you get to that point? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, I think we're the first hospital system in the country um, to mandate vaccine, and there's only but a couple others that I've seen so far follow. But but in discussions with uh, most of my colleagues around the country and locally, uh, you know, everybody intends to go there. It's it's a matter of timing and and how best to get there. Uh, we are now mandatory. Um, there's a June 7th deadline for all of our employees. So, you know, as, as of today, not everybody is uh, uh, vaccinated, but we're, we're getting there quickly. 
we started about six weeks ago uh, with our new hires. And so all new hires have been mandated for about six weeks. Uh, on, uh, on March 31st, we announced for our uh, managers that they would be required to release one dose by April 15th. So that's passed and we've gotten through that and done very, very well with that. I'm very grateful uh, to that team. We were at 96% of our management before we even did that. And uh, wow. now we are about 86% of our staff and mandated as of June 7th. You know, the way I see it is, is you know, and I learned this early on as a primary care physician, working in healthcare is a privilege and, and with privilege comes responsibility. And that responsibility is caring for our patients and keeping our patients safe. So I emphatically obviously believe that all of us in healthcare really have a sacred obligation to keep our patients safe. And one of the ways of doing that uh, is through vaccination against COVID. Uh, we've mandated flu vaccine for a dozen years as uh, have you know many, many other hospitals around the country. And we really don't see this as any difference. Um, we see this as, as the same going forward. In fact, much more important going forward because it's obviously so much more deadly than the flu is. Right. So, Mark, um, uh, tell us a little bit about a Houston Methodist, you know, sort of the size and the number of uh, employees that you have, number of docs. And, and um, tell me if you uh, got any pushback from uh, this mandate when the vaccine is still under the um, uh, experimental use uh, authorization. Well, let me let me let me correct you right there. It's an emergency use authorization, and that's one of the one of the the key kind of misconceptions out there. Not experimental, and so you know these are not experimental vaccines. They've been very very well studied. Uh, and uh, so, talking about Houston Methodist, um, you know, we have a flagship academic medical center in the Texas Medical Center. Uh, you know, has academic programs, teaching programs, a large research institute, etc. And then we have seven, well, six community hospitals and a and a seventh in the community that is a long term acute care. Uh, hospital, about 26,000 employees, about 6,000 physicians, about 1,000 of whom are, are employed and the uh, rest are affiliated. Uh, and it is mandatory in all of those circumstances there. Um, obviously, from a physician standpoint with our employed physicians, it's the same as other employees where we can mandate this with our other physicians. This is actually going through our medical staffs uh, and uh, we have eight independent medical staffs and they've all made that decision to synchronize uh, either exactly or very approximately, uh, you know, very close to the date that we mandate with uh, our staff. And do you have exceptions? I mean, if someone just, you know, is, is not going to do it or, you know, sometimes with the flu vaccine, we actually have people who are allergic and, you know, have some, uh, uh, allergy to egg or, or whatever. And so there's exceptions. Um, what's your exception policy? Yeah, so, you know, and, and, and the flu has been, you know, having done this long time for the flu. And of course, there's many other things we require in healthcare, right? We require PPDs for tuberculosis and, you know, many other things that, that, that happen along the way. But uh, flu is probably the most analogous situation. Um, so there are two exemptions. One is for healthcare reasons. The other is for medical reasons. I'm, I'm sorry. One is for religious reasons. The other is for, for medical reasons. Um, and uh, both of those, uh, an individual can file an exemption. It goes through a committee process. Same thing we've done with the flu for a dozen years. Um, you know, so really you don't see any dramatic differences here. In fact, you know, you, you allude to egg allergy with some of the flu preparations. You don't have that obviously with, with right. COVID. We do know we have, you know, anaphylaxis and that's an issue. So, so that's a very valid exemption in some cases. And then there are religious exemptions, but, you know, in many cases we have people who've taken the flu shot for a dozen years and then they ask for an exemption here. And you can't really figure out why this would be any different because in general it, it wouldn't be. So, so that's been informing those decisions as well. 
The other thing we decided to do was to create a deferral, not an exemption, but a deferral, meaning you could postpone it for pregnant women um, simply because there's so, you know, there's not that much data uh, in terms of pregnancy, although now there's evolving to be, you know, tens and tens of thousands of women where we have uh, a registry nationally and and, and knowing it's safe. In fact, our, let me be clear, our OBGYNs are strongly recommending to all of their their patients that they get vaccinated because pregnancy is in itself a, a significant risk for COVID. And uh, frankly, you know, being able to give uh, antibodies um, through maternal breast milk uh, to the infant is also very beneficial. And so they're strongly recommending it, but even that that's a very emotional subject um, for understandable reasons and that it's not as well studied, we have a deferral for that. We also put a deferral in place, and this is a very small number of people who, who are in um, uh, uh, any type of fertility treatment, the significant, you know, significant fertility treatment, simply because those are people who many times, you know, three, four times are trying to get pregnant, going through IVF, et cetera. It's highly expensive. It's highly, uh, you know, stressful for everybody. And, and, you know, they're trying to not rock the boat at all. And we understand there's not really any science behind that as much as just compassionately saying, Hey, wait, I'll hold off a little bit. If you get pregnant, of course, then you can also have a deferral. If you don't, then we'd expect you to get, uh, uh, uh vaccinated after that. Oh, great. That's, um, um, that's very interesting. Now, David, I know, tell us a little bit about uh, Memorial Hermann, and I know you're um, also um, thinking about mandating it on this uh, potentially in the future. What's your, what's your um, current thoughts and, and where's your organization? Well, as Mark mentioned, it's really a timing issue for a lot of us. We've announced that the vaccines will be mandatory as we move forward. We're thinking about the timing um, a little differently than Mark. Um, Really thinking we want to make vaccines mandatory when we feel comfortable relaxing some of our other safety measures. And so that would mean that we would be at an extended period of reasonable community control of COVID-19 here in Houston. We could be thinking about relaxing our uh, our mask mandates and some of those other protective behavioral um, control measures that we've used. At that point, vaccination would be the principal approach to controlling the spread of COVID-19. We think that's the right time to really force our employees to be vaccinated. In the meantime, we're continuing with our educational efforts. We're ahead of the national average in terms of employees getting vaccinated. We've put out a very extensive communication uh, set to our employees to help them understand about the vaccines, their safety, their effectiveness, to try to answer some of the common questions that were asked about the vaccines. And we're seeing an uptick in terms of the acceptance rate over the course of the the time since we started that campaign. I completely agree. Education is so critically important. In fact, you know, we started messaging both anything we could about the vaccines and educating about the vaccines. And then also that we would eventually go mandatory. I mean, the better part of a year ago, I mean, as the vaccine mm-hmm. starting to be studied and talked about certainly before this time last year, and then as the summer we started having enrollment and, and people in the studies, as each of these phases came out, significant recurrent repetitive communication with our, with our team. And probably at least since the August, September timeframe saying this will be mandatory. It's only a matter of when and deciding what the right 
timing is. Right. Uh, you know, we really felt like, uh, you know, we, we wanted to, to lead the way because we wanted to be the safest hospital system on the planet. And uh, we wanted to drive that forward at a time that made sense. Um, and so, you know, it's been very effective. Um, uh, you know, we ultimately will not force anyone to take a vaccine. Um, you know, we, we will require it as a condition of employment. But if somebody doesn't want the vaccine, obviously that's their free choice. Um, they you know, won't be employed with us at a certain point. But, you know, from our standpoint, we hope that's a very, very small number of people. But at the end of the day, that's okay because we put the patient at the center of everything. Safety comes first. We are scientifically based and, uh, you know, academically based. And if somebody can't, you know, see their way to, to put the patient first, ultimately, uh, and doesn't have a valid reason that we give an exemption for, um, you know, ultimately they're not going to be a cultural fit and that's okay. Um, that's okay. Some, there are other reasons people sometimes don't fit a culture. And if that's the case, you know, there are other places they will fit better. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. You know, I mean, from a scientific point of view, um, as you said, it, it makes sense. And we have a responsibility to make our environment safe uh, for our community. Um, David, as you take a look at what you've done to build a vaccine uh, confidence. Um, what are what are the some some of the things that have worked, but also what are some of the concerns that the um, staff is bringing to your attention? Well, we, um, we we've done quite a bit of information gathering uh, from our staff as well as from the public. You know, there are two key factors. Number one is having consistent, accurate information. Mm -hmm. that's available being passed along actively. The other is maintaining the trust of our employees and the public. On the safety front, we clearly demonstrated that our facilities are safe. With masking, with social distancing, we just have not seen the transmission of COVID-19 in our facilities. We've had a few of our employer, uh, employees who have come down with COVID but they've encountered it and basically contracted it in the community, not at work. So we feel like we're safe today. And so again, our approach is that while we're safe, let's do our best to get out good, consistent information, have it come from multiple sources through multiple channels and continue to grow the trust of our employees in us, grow the trust of the public in us in terms of providing accurate information about the vaccines. Well, thanks. So um, let's turn to that uh, topic of um, what your uh, health systems are doing to build trust in the community. Um, what, what are some of the activities? What are some of the uh, messages that uh, you're finding useful? Uh, Mark, let's start with you. What, what is your institution um, doing? Sure, that's been obviously a very active thing that we've we've been doing. Uh, you know, I talked about with our employees. Um, really, so much of it is you know two. There's two major facets. One is continual education and really reliance on the science and talking about the science and and looking at the data that's there and doing that. You know, through trusted individuals. So you know, senior medical staff, for example, um, nursing staff, obstetrician, gynecologists. When we're talking about you know pregnancy issues and, and lactation issues, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've done large town hall series uh, with our staff, many, many Q and A's, et cetera. The other side of it is 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 very much listening, right? Listening and understanding why 
some individuals are hesitant to get the vaccine, right? Because we're we're up in the high 80s, 86, 87% now of our employees. It's a very high number. You're not going to find many places there, but there's Conversely, that's still 12 or 13 percent of 2,600 people. So it's a lot of people who uh, are, uh, you know, still reluctant and hesitant. And we hear a whole gamut of things from those individuals. And so working with them, using our values, our values are uh, I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, respect and excellence. And so, you know, respecting them, uh, being compassionate and really, um, you know, listening um, along the way and trying to help them make the right decisions. But also acknowledging and recognizing that there is a point where, you know, as the healthcare institution um, that really needs to lead the way. I mean, watching, you know, universities mandate, great. We, we think that is a very important thing. Watching cruise lines mandate and other things. I have a hard time, you know, uh, in, envisioning how we're going to be a health system and tell everybody, hey, we're, we're, we're not mandating, but, you know, you can go on a cruise and be safer than in our hospitals from a, from a vaccination standpoint. So, you know, it, there is a balancing act there. We made the decision obviously sooner than some others did. Um, but, you know, again, I think most, most, if not all of health will go there because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. David, what have you done? Um, what is your health system doing now and what are they going to do to increase vaccine confidence in the community? Well, number one, we, we found that whether it's, um, our own employees are the public at large that we're considering. There are really three principal issues. Vaccine hesitancy obviously is very complicated, but there are three principal issues. Number one, concern about the short-term acute side effects. Oh my gosh, my arm's going to hurt. I'm going to feel crummy for a day. I don't want to do that. I just don't want to have that experience. Number two, concern about long-term effects. And really where we are in the clinical trials, we have indirect evidence that there are no long-term major um, side effects that should be of concern, but the trials aren't completed yet. And so there still are questions, well, could there be mysterious long-term side effects that we don't know about yet? The other is, do these things work? You know, will they really protect us? Why should I put myself at some risk, whether it be for short-term or long-term side effects, if they really are not going to work? So our information campaigns internally and externally have been aimed at answering those three major, addressing those three major concerns. So internally, just like Mark, a lot of videos from trusted people from across the system, certainly within the inpatient facilities, known faces, known colleagues, a lot of different channels used to communicate the information about why I chose to take the vaccine. For the public, um, slightly different approach, but using radio, internet, social, using multi-language um, approaches, doing using partnerships, so the local metropolitan transit group, um, providing information to them, going to uh, multifamily housing units and speaking with managers and making information available with them. But just doing everything we can on our own and through partnerships to get out information through a variety of channels that um, is aimed at responding to those three concerns. Okay. Now, um, although most of our um, institutions, academic medical uh, systems uh, do give vaccine, um, where we in the past have not been like the public health department where we have 
um, stood up large um, vaccine ambulatory sites. Um, what are you doing, David, right now in regards to helping to get the vaccine out? And, and what's your strategy uh, over the next uh, six months? Yeah, we, uh, I think, started like uh, Mark and many others, you know, what, what can we do to get as much vaccine into arms as possible? And we used our existing facilities, our inpatient facilities, our ambulatory clinics. We also organized mass vaccination events, drive-through events, where people could actually pull through in their car. We made those very efficient. We got thousands of doses out. Now um, we're shifting a bit. We understand that the challenge now is more out in the community. Um, we probably vaccinated those who were willing to come to drive to change or corrupt their schedule for the day to be vaccinated. Now we need to make it more convenient, more accessible on a smaller scale. So we're out now at churches, at schools, um, working with some of our nonprofit partners to create smaller venue events so we can make vaccine availability um, easier or better for people who have struggled a bit, either with technology or with transportation to get to our existing sites or some of the mass vaccination events. David, where are you getting the staff for this? We're actually using our own staff. It's so you're pulling, them, you're pulling them from your ambulatory, from any of the different um, areas you're pulling them. Yeah. Now, you know, we certainly have had a marvelous public response in terms of volunteerism, people who want to come forward and be engaged and helping with traffic flow, helping people um, process through a site and the like. But in terms of actually administering the vaccines, preparing them, using our nurses, pharmacists, other support personnel, those are Memorial Hermann folks that are doing it. Oh, yeah. we've, uh, we've, we've also used our own staff. And, and you know, I, what, what we talk about often is, you know, it, this has been so much of a high throughput focus, right? We are all trying to get as many vaccines into arms as fast as we possibly can. And in the community now, broadly across Greater Houston, we're starting to see that little bit of slowdown. So for instance, the FEMA site that stood up is having trouble filling its schedule. Um, like Memorial Hermann, we're, we're still filling our schedule, but it's, it's, it's definitely uh, less of a backlog, less of a waiting list, less of a sign up list. And in fact, a lot of people are sort of saying, hmm, let me sign up because we have direct access on the web now. And they sign up for one day out and two days out. So oftentimes we're seeing those schedules fill later. So, you know, we're seeing all of the signs that suggest we're going to start hitting some some big bumps. So what we talk about often is so we've had this high throughput strategy supplemented by a community strategy. All the things David was talking about that we've done working with churches, working with uh, actually a lot of elected officials to get things stood up in their districts, um, you know, going out and being available, you know, and th those are not nearly the same high throughput or the relatively high throughput events, but, but none of them are massive just simply because of the nature of how those end up happening. J&J um, &J was a very useful tool there. So that's been a challenge, um, but doable. We, we were prior to that doing a lot of that with Pfizer. But what we talk about now is it's going to shift very much out of a high throughput mode, you know, where we might have an MA or whomever it is doing 12 to 15 vaccines an hour within our structure and with other people around them, obviously you're doing many parts of the process. Um, and it may be two an hour or four an hour, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be a lot more shoe leather. I mean, you know, figuratively. Right and a lot more work to get to individuals in their communities, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. And and speaking of the uh, J&J vaccine and with the uh, recent um, uh, pause in the use of J&J, uh, how has this affected your message, uh, your messages? Uh, what do you see as sort of a, a, a response to the pause with uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine? You know, we, we were seeing, uh, we were actually seeing a little bit of difficulty on J&J before that already. So, you know, when we would put together a and j event, um, we'd ultimately utilize it, but it was, um, there was more reluctance, more people, and the reluctance really was not fear of that vaccine, but no, no, I really would rather have one of those other ones I'll reschedule. So we were actually dealing with that already. So I am quite concerned that what has happened with uh, J&J getting paused is really going to take demand way down for people. Right. Who want to use it. I hope not. Um, we saw this as, you know, a success of the trials and a success then of the subsequent follow-up, right? Because this appears to be a very, very rare event, less than one in a million, most likely, uh, that was caught on surveillance and that the that that was paused while they sort this out. But it is such a low frequency, I, I predict, and it, it, that just happened in Europe, it's going to get a warning on it uh, and it'll come back out. I mean, we as physicians all know every single drug we ever use has some pros and cons, right? And there are many drugs we use all the time that have much higher rates of clotting issues and other things uh, than, than what they're describing here. And of course, the virus itself has way, way higher uh, uh, risk of clotting for individuals who are, who are infected than, than the vaccine does. Um, so, you know, I do think also, um, as we talk to the public and as we talk to our, our, our employees and others, there's, there has been a level of sophistication to understand these are very different vaccines. And this is not what's seen in the ones that have been used the most. So if you look at the mRNA vaccines, you know, we're, we're probably pushing 200 million doses. You can't quite parse it out from the federal data. You know, you're way over 100 million people who have gotten it in the U.S. alone. And no, you know, there's nothing remotely similar to that. I mean, the only signal that's been there is a little bit of, uh, 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 you know, obviously allergy that happens, particularly anaphylaxis, and a very, also very rare and very treatable. So, uh, you know, it, we've used it also to amplify the message that look, overall, these are safe and they're well studied and, and they're well followed. Yeah, and you know, right now, uh, as I understand it, uh, the change is is just under seven million vaccines uh, that have been given. And uh, as we do this podcast, the pause is still on. But at the end of this week, uh, the CDC advisory committee um, will come out. There are, um, you know, there are a number of people who argue that the event is so rare that your risk is greater. Um, to have complications from the disease. David, was what are you seeing from the pause with the J&J and, and the uh, concerns that might be brought up because of it? Well, early returns actually suggest that there's a general relief that our vaccine monitoring systems are working. Mm-hmm. We've been pleasantly surprised that we've not seen a great deal of negative response to our work with the Pfizer and Modernas that we can directly relate to what's happened with J&J. I'd say, you know, kudos and thanks to everybody around the country who works so diligently to get out good information quickly about the reason for the pause, the frequency of the reactions, as Mark said, you know, six out of over more than 7 million doses administered. And so we've been able to talk about that. We've been able to talk about CVST, um, what it looks like when it occurs in the unvaccinated population, some of the things that drive it. So 
I think the fact that all of us have been monitoring what's happening, we put out good information, we're following along, actually will help us as we go forward in terms of making people uh, comfortable that we're monitoring what's happening with these vaccines and we're really working hard to ensure that people can safely get them and not suffer the side effects or bad side effects. And what we all need to remember is, I mean, the, the risk of dying in the United States so far from COVID, entire populations about one in 600, one in 600, that's a heck of a lot different than one in a million, you know, even with that vaccine. I mean, those are, you know, obviously that's a no brainer sort of analysis. If people can do the risk analysis, it's very hard to do that risk analysis as an individual, right? And know that you're going to give yourself maybe a one in a million chance versus, you know, well, maybe this other one in 600 won't really happen. I mean, people, people, we, it's just, we know that right through, through the ages, it's very hard to assess those kinds of risks. And the reality is if you're over 50, the risk wasn't one in 600. The risk was way higher than that. You know, so if you're over 65 or 75, it's even way higher than that. So, um, you know, this is a very severe disease that, you know, we can, you know, push back down, down, down if we convince everybody to get vaccinated. You know, and I am concerned that we're starting to see those early signs of slowdown. And it's really that last 20 or 30 percent that we need to convince that are, you know, going to drive this home for us and get get, you know, both life back to normal, but most importantly, protect everyone together. So we don't have all the patients in our hospitals that we still do today. I mean, it's much better than it was, but we still, you know, have more patients in our hospital than in the worst flu season that happens just for a couple of weeks at peak. We're way above that. Um, and we're that way day after day after day. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that risk, that risk balance is, is very crystal clear. Right. Well, you know, and it's, it's uh, interesting because um, I look at this as a time where, we had the opportunity to talk about science with the general population and talk about numbers. And I, I think that we have to grab this opportunity. People have um, uh, talked about the American public not understanding science, not being, uh, you know, really uh, aware of a number of things. And, and we've, we have an opportunity to talk about vaccines. We have the opportunity to talk about uh, this pandemic in a, a very different way. Um, David, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, does this change, uh, you know, as we go forward? How, how do we, how do we use this crisis to um, help change um, healthcare uh, understanding in education of science? Yeah, absolutely agree with you. And um, I think we've made progress on that front too, Janice, particularly over the last several months, developing more consistent messaging, thinking about how we develop uh, approaches that truly resonate with a larger number of people about the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines. And it seems that that effort is growing so that certainly is a, a good signal that, that I'm seeing. I'm very pleased to see. Um, I, you know, one of the things that we've learned, too, particularly as we've gotten out of our clinics and out of these mass vaccination sites and into some of the neighborhoods, if we can make it easy for people to get the vaccine, if we're willing to listen to them, and offer information that's relative to or relevant to their concerns, they're much more likely to come forward and be vaccinated. And so you know, I certainly agree that we have this marvelous opportunity to talk about science and to make it a little 
simpler and use the information, deliver consistent messaging and continue to uh, see people come forward to be vaccinated. But I think there's an important role too to be out there and, and working with small groups and even with individuals to deliver the message really focused on their individual concerns. To me, that's sort of the next frontier, but we're getting there now. And I think that's going to make a difference too. Mm-hmm. You know, last summer, I, uh, uh, at a certain point sort of was reflecting on, and this was kind of in the midst of really bad surge in Houston that we were having uh, in the summer uh, and reflecting on what, what had we learned so far? Um, and I had five key things. I don't need to go through all of those today, but the, the first one I put there was science in real time is messy particularly biological science. And then the second part of that was, but science is the way out of the pandemic and the only way out of the pandemic. And so one of the hard things I think for, and this was a point in time, of course, where we were still arguing about, are we gonna mask or not? And I mean, we were in the middle of a surge in, in, in Texas and Houston, we still didn't have a masking, you know, consistent masking, for instance. Um, you know, and we were arguing about different drugs and all these different things that were happening. They were getting politicized, right? In addition to the science. But also part of the politicization was the fact that, hey, sometimes we don't know and we have hypotheses and we test hypotheses and they're wrong or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's been a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, that's been hard for the public to watch. I mean, we as physicians have been there and sometimes it's really frustrating and there's things that we believe for 20 years that then get disproven, right? Um, But um, uh, for the public, that was very hard. But on the flip side, I think over time, to David's point, I think the public started to really recognize and understand that, and we've gotten much more consistent messaging out there. Actually, I think on the vaccines, we have the best consistent information we've had probably about almost anything that's happened here from the trusted sources in the country. There is a very, you know, let's be clear, there's there's hesitant, you know, that's fine, that's understandable, that can be educated. Then there's flat out wrong, right? And there's flat out anti. And there are people who are working very actively and who have done so for 20 plus years to undermine vaccinations, which are one of the greatest advances of the 20th century in terms of saving lives. I mean, it's it's that, it's antimicrobials and, and, and it's sanitation are the things that save the most lives. It's not cancer treatment and heart disease treatment. Those are critically important, but those are at the margins, you know, when you look at that last century. So, um, you know, you ha- we, we also have to differentiate between the, you know, the hesitant versus the, you know, really cynical information that's out there trying to, to misinform the public. Right, right. I, I, um, I, I did an interview recently where uh, I was asked to do debunk uh, myths from social media. And I, I do, you know, there's uh, evidence out there that misinformation on social media travels faster. And so that's what we uh, are, are up against. And, and we have to look at it. And, and uh, you know, David, as, as you look at your messaging, um, you know, are you are, are you using social messaging, um, social media as a uh, a platform for your community, or is that not something um, that you see as relevant right now? Oh, we absolutely are. You know, we all need to be in that space, at least from my perspective, and I, I know Mark agrees with this too. You know, and and we're certainly being proactive in terms of putting out messaging following that messaging and looking at responses and then adjusting the messages as we believe is necessary. Uh, Obviously, we're also monitoring what's happening otherwise relative to vaccines, COVID-19, 
And when there's misinformation, when there's myth, when there are other things that we don't think ring true, then we do our best through the social media channels to address those issues. A very important part of the communication effort. And I think we've been successful with that for the most part. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to um, uh, take a look and say, what is the one thing that you want every healthcare personnel, not just um, in your institutions in Houston, but across the United States, if there's one message that you'd like to give healthcare personnel uh, about the FDA authorized vaccines or about getting vaccinated, what would it be? I would I would say that listen you know trust the vaccines um, and help us get that message out there and and there's actually a two layer uh, meaning to that the first and obviously really important one is trust them in that they have been well studied they are showing to be credibly safe in huge enormous uh, real world experience right we've now given more doses of mRNA vaccines than we would give flu shots in a year. And we're going to very rapidly approach the same number of people um, that normally get a flu shot. These are incredibly well studied already. They are safe. And as a healthcare provider, um, we have a responsibility and obligation to protect ourselves, to protect our patients and to protect the community. So trust the vaccines, get the vaccines and promote the vaccines. The other way that trust the vaccines works, though, is we have to acknowledge the fact that they are highly effective. And I think we've at times made the mistake nationally to be so hunkered down in our pre-vaccination mentality that we're not giving people enough of a carrot, enough of a reason to say, I want to get vaccinated because when I get vaccinated, the world will be better and the world will be better, right? And so we need to trust that they are effective. And I tell people, of course, that's an individual decision. It depends on your own risk factors, your own risk tolerance, of course but we can begin to do things more normally in a graduated fashion that makes sense. But if we all band together and get vaccinated, we can all go that way in just a couple of months, but it's a matter of getting across that, you know, it's not really a finish line, but getting across, you know, sort of a threshold of percentage of people. So as healthcare professionals, help be part of the solution and make that happen. Thanks, Mark. I think that's a very important part of the message. And I think, you know, I would, distill it down to the COVID-19 vaccines are safe, they're effective, and they are an incredible tool to help us improve the health of all that we serve, not only in this country, but all around the world. You know, we spent a lot of time at meetings of the AAMC and a lot of other groups talking about our responsibility to move beyond the to focus on health care, think more about health, get beyond the walls of our clinics and our hospitals and get out into the communities. These vaccines are a very, very, very important part of accomplishing that goal of improving the health and well-being of all that we serve. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Boom and Dr. Collender. It's been great to speak with you both. If you've been vaccinated, talk to your colleagues who have not. One-on-one conversations that lead with empathy, not judgment, can make a difference in encouraging more people to get vaccinated. It will make a difference in your community and nationwide. We are all in this together. Thank you.
This is a project of the Association of American Medical Colleges, funded by a cooperative agreement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, improving clinical and public health outcomes through national partnerships to prevent and control emerging and re-emerging infectious disease threats. Award number 1NU50CK000586-01-2022. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services. The information included in this podcast does not necessarily represent the policies of the CDC or HHS and should not be considered an endorsement by the federal government.